Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Let's go to the Word of God. Our text this week is Romans chapter 3, and we've done the first two verses, and now we're verses 3 through 8. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some say that we claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul is engaging in a series of questions as a teaching method. And the first question is whether the betrayal of their trust by some, some of the Jews will, quote, nullify the faithfulness of God. Now, what trust is he referring to? Well, the trust that he's speaking about, he spoke of in the previous verse we studied last week, where the Apostle Paul said that the greatest privilege of being a member of the Old Testament covenant community, the Jews, was that they had been entrusted with the Scriptures. This was the first and greatest advantage of being a Jew. He said, verses 1 and 2, then what advantage has the Jew or what benefit is circumcision? Great in every respect. And then first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So we're dealing here with a language of trust. We're dealing here with a language of faithfulness. The Jews have been entrusted with the words of the Old Testament, the oracles of God, and they're to keep the trust. Now, how would a Jew keep the trust of the Old Testament? Another question is, how would they betray the trust? How would some of the Jews be unfaithful to the trust that has been given them in the Old Testament? The way they would do it is by not believing in the one who was to come. By rejecting the Messiah, by rejecting the suffering of the servant. And so you see Jesus after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus opening up the entire Old Testament pointing to his coming. The Jews knew it. The Jews looked for it. The Jews wrote about it. We saw last week that Nathaniel had his attention directed to it where he said the one that we've been waiting for. You remember all this. All the Jews knew that there was a promised Messiah. They knew that he would be a suffering servant. But when he came... He didn't have any of the trappings of what they wanted to see. They wanted him to be a man like Solomon, a man like David. They wanted to see finally release from their captivity, their, their, their oppression by the terrible Roman Empire. And guess what? Jesus came as a suffering servant. 
And it was scandalous to them, and they rejected it. They would not have a humble Savior. Why? Well, because they were proud. And it's very hard to throw yourself before Jesus because we're proud. And so the ways that they were unfaithful to the covenant that God had struck with them is that they rejected the coming Messiah. When he came, they would not worship him. They would not look to him. And so the question that's being asked, the Apostle Paul is teaching by asking a series of questions, and pretty much all through the questions, the answers are evident, rhetorical questions where you know what's being asked, right? And so what the Apostle Paul does is he asks a series of questions and then answers them more with exclamations than with reason and logic, all right? And he's going through these questions, and the first one is, what? What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Now, that question really doesn't make sense. I I mean, or maybe I should say that question is different than I would ask it. Because what I would say is, well, you know, if, if, you, if you have a covenant, if you have a contract, there are two parties to the contract, one party is unfaithful to the contract, all right, what I would ask is, well, the other one's released from the contract, isn't he? That's what I'd ask. I'd say, well, then he's free of any contractual obligations that he has for his side because this person blew it apart, right? That's not what is asked here, though. What is asked is, if some did not believe, they weren't faithful to the contract, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Their unfaithfulness will not nullify God's faithfulness. Their unfaithfulness will not make nothing God's faithfulness. Now, why would he ask it that way? Well, listen. All through the text that we're studying this morning, what we see is that the issue is all about the goodness of God. And this is a theme that's going to come up over and over in the book of Romans. Paul is a good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He knows how we think. And he bores inside of us. And he says, okay, I know what you're thinking. So let me ask it publicly. Write it down. If some of God's people are unfaithful, that doesn't make God unfaithful, does it? Now, why would you ask that question? Why would anybody ask whether that makes God unfaithful? They're unfaithful, not God. I think the answer to it is, and I I probably shouldn't say I think, but the answer to it is that We have to do here, not with man, but with God. We're not talking about a man and a woman with a contract, or a woman and a woman, or a man and a man. We're not talking about a contract between two creatures. We're talking here of a contract between the Creator, Almighty God, and one of His creation, or a group, the Jews. And there's a sense in which every single contract that God enters into is what? unilateral. God's contracts are not bilateral. Not one of you, if you are a believer, not one of you, when you became a believer, thought that you were being 
offered the opportunity to, to knock one out of the park. Not one of you thought that this was your chance to make a name for yourself by telling God no. I've never had anybody give me the testimony of God borning them again. You know what I'm talking about, borning again. Of God regenerating, of God converting you, of God giving you new birth. I've never had anybody describe to me how they weighed it. On the one hand, this, and on the other hand, this, and on the one hand, this, and on the other hand. I don't care what their theology is. What people say is, I was born again. God what? God changed me. And when you look at Abram, when God calls him out, and Abram gets up and goes at what, 80? You know, you're not being taught that Abram had this great idea that he and God would be like a special pair. And Abram, on the one hand, weighed staying where he was, and on the other hand, going to a place that God hadn't told him, and all things being equal, he was, he was ready for a change. It's absurd. God, God is God. God is God. God is not man. God is not an idol. God is not bothered by us. God is God. And when God calls a man to himself, that man comes because he knows God is able to make him come. God is able to do everything that God commands. This is why the prayer of God's people is always command what you will, and cause me to obey what you command. Okay? This is how we are. Now, what then about the question? If some are unfaithful, it doesn't nullify God's faithfulness, does it? What's going on here is that we all know that God is fully capable of fulfilling his promises. We know that God is perfectly capable of fulfilling promises that we are dead sent against. God is perfectly capable of an an instant changing our will. We heard this about the pastor, the godly pastor, and none of us were sitting there going, oh no, how could he have even conceived of aborting his unborn child? No, no, no. We all knew You know, well, $20,000, $30,000, well, you know, I'm on my way to the abortionist, and that's not to mention that the church told me to do it. Come on. God stopped him. God said, thou shalt not kill. And then he tried again, and God stopped him again. And it really does have to be about like that with us. (laughs) Be honest. Be honest. And so what the Apostle Paul is asking is, okay, so if some were unfaithful, does that nullify God's faithfulness? After all, why were they unfaithful? What is the, unanswered, what is the unspoken answer? Well, they're unfaithful because what? God didn't make them faithful, Right? God has the ability of making everyone faithful. Haven't any of you desired to be a puppet? Huh? I've wanted to be a puppet. I get so tired of doing what I wouldn't and not doing what I would. I get so tired of having these internal debates and arguments and, and just this, 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 this terrible dilemma of 
not doing what I know I should do and want to do and doing the things that I don't want to do. It's constant in the Christian life. And at some point, you just get... And if you don't, I, I assure you, your wife does. You know, of just saying, make him a puppet. For heaven's sakes, make him a puppet. <laughs> right? Have any of you thought that? About yourselves? Come on. God has the ability of making us do what he wants us to do. We all know that. We've all had God relieve us by taking our will and bending it to his. And it's such a relief when he does it. And so this is the idea behind this text that, well, you know, if some of them were unfaithful, you know, does this nullify God's faithfulness? Every contract with God is, in a certain sense, what? Unilateral. Unilateral. If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Will it? It says a little bit later in in chapter 4, verse 21, that Abraham became fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform. God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He is faithfulness itself. God can do anything. All things are possible with God. And so the Apostle Paul poses this question, and it's not whether the unfaithfulness of some Jews frees God from his covenant obligations, but whether those Jews' unfaithfulness nullifies God's unfaithfulness. And the wording of the question, not to mention the perfections of God, including his faithfulness, his perfect faithfulness, his infinite faithfulness, answer the question. In other words, it's a rhetorical question with an assumed and necessary answer. Who or what could ever nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, is that that an answer? Let Let me repeat it. Who or what could ever nullify the faithfulness of God? Is that an answer? No, it's not an answer, is it? I mean, if you're sitting there and you're, you're, you know, you're, an, you're a reasonable brain processing the question, and I respond by saying, who or what could ever nullify the faithfulness of God? What, do you, what is your response going to be? Your response is going to be, that's no answer. Who or what could ever nullify? Come on, answer the questions. You know, stop, stop evading the question. You know, you haven't answered it. You're just trying to overpower me. That's a good question I ask. Now answer it. Who or what could... So here's the answer from the Apostle Paul. Verse 4, what? It's very sophisticated. The answer is, may it never be. May it never be. Okay, we all feel good now, right? Right? Listen, my mother was a better mother than most of you. Because my mother, when I would go to her, and her other children would go to her, and they would ask her something, and she'd give them the answer. Then they'd say what? 
That's a nasal tone. My. My. And what would my mother say? Because my mother knew God, and she knew that she was a placeholder for the fatherhood of God. My mother would look at us, and she would say, what? She would say, because I said so. That's why. Because I, your mother, said so. That's why. And let me tell you, not one of us ever said, that's no answer. That was one thing with which my mother would not have up put. May it never be, the Apostle Paul says, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Doesn't he write just like every Presbyterian pastor on Facebook? I mean, could you imagine any text more contrary to the culture of Facebook? If your pastor wrote that on Facebook, I don't think you'd be pleased with your pastor. You know something? It looks to me like the Apostle Paul is not suffering fools. It looks like the Apostle Paul is like a good running back. Right? What he really has is just a stiff arm. And people are bouncing off him at this point. He says, what? He says, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. (coughs) Psalm 100 says that God's faithfulness is what? To all generations. The Apostle Paul then quotes from the Old Testament, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And this quotation is from um, the Old Testament, and it's from a very well-known psalm. It's Psalm 51. And it's the psalm where David confesses his sin to God of adultery and murder. He says this, Psalm 51, beginning with verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you, what? So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Listen, you, as you raise your children, need to quote this constantly to them. God is true, and all men are liars. I am a liar. Your elders are liars. Your deacons are liars. The Titus II women are liars. 
Your father and mother are liars, and you are a worse one. All men are liars. It is impossible for us not to lie. When we say we're not liars, we're lying. We are liars. If I were to say what I think is, are the two most um, frustrating things to me in doing the work that I do writing, they are these two things, that Presbyterian pastors and elders have no self-critical capacity. They have no ability of seeing their sin. They stand in the place of God, and if you ever question them, they act as if the crown jewels have been stolen. This is just so appalling how many times I've had men tell me, or women, that they've grown up in a home where their dad has never apologized to them for anything. I don't, I don't understand this. How, <laughs> and then the second thing, so no self-critical capacity, but then the second thing is, I mean to tell you, if you ever, ever suggest to anybody that they just equivocated, that they've dissembled, that they have twisted the truth, that they've exaggerated anything bordering lies, it's like, it's, it's a hissy fit. And yet, what does Scripture show, show us about all the heroes in Scripture? They lie and lie and lie. Look at how David handled Uriah coming home from the battle. You know, go home and... And, and sleep with your wife. What is that? It's a lie. David is pretending that he is concerned that Uriah will have the joy of conjugal bliss. And that's not what he wants. What he wants is for his adultery to be covered up. We lie constantly. We constantly twist the truth in such a way that somebody will be led to a conviction that we know very well is not true, and we do it in such a way that we can have plausible deniability and deny that we actually said anything that's explicitly against the truth. Women do it, men do it. Mothers do it, fathers do it, elders do it, pastors do it. Everybody does it. And, and you have the audacity to sit there and think that the reason that I'm saying this is because I'm bad and you're good. Or you think, well, he's trying to get everybody to chill out about lying. No. I'm just saying until we begin to recognize that we are liars, we're not going to begin to repent of it. You have to work hard to distinguish between right and wrong. This is what Hebrews says. And one of the things you have to work really hard at is is diagnosing your liarhood. <laughs> your, what would the word be? Your lying nature, something like that. And so the Apostle Paul just says, <laughs> God's true and all men are liars. Now, is that a logical answer? Come on. No, it's not a logical answer. He keeps just stonewalling us. Do you notice this? Then he says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. So what's going on here? Well, what he's saying is the only way that God's righteousness can be real righteousness is if God doesn't benefit from unrighteousness. 
If everything's about God's glory, and God gets glory when he condemns sin, then God's the author of sin. Then sin's good, because after all, it brings God glory, because God's able to be a judge when there's sin, you know? And so it's just a merry-go-round where everybody's happy. There's one side that gives God glory by sinning, and there's the other side that gives God glory by repenting of sin. And so it's just a mishmash, and, and I always knew it was a mishmash anyhow, and I'm going to go see what the Oracle Delphi has to say to me. Come on. This is exactly how we play the game. We accuse God of evil. That is you and me. We're not just liars, but we're liars when it comes to the character of God. We act as if the only things that are really righteous are when somebody does something with absolutely no motives other than pure good. We actually believe, and thank you, Ben, and your friend for teaching me this, we actually believe that if you do something to escape something that God warned you against, that that makes your action of avoiding that sin just slightly dirty, and that if you do something that's right because God's offered a reward for that thing, that makes that righteousness slightly dirty. And so if God has ordained things in such a way that you sin, and and it redounds to his glory because he's able to judge you, then God's the author of sin. God benefits from your sin, and so God's perverse. Now listen, You don't think you think this way. You do think this way. You do think this way. We do think that God owes us our being good and that when we're bad, it redounds to his glory and so he shouldn't really be upset about it. We do think that God should never benefit from anything Because how can he be God if he actually receives glory from sin and from righteousness? He should be impervious to it. He should be above it. And so then, you know what we do? When people attack God in our presence, we act as if we're magnanimous. Because God doesn't need us defending him. He can take care of himself. Listen, people say this stuff in our presence all the time. It's a little different. The Apostle Paul heard it. You and I hear it. We hear people attacking God this bald-facedly. And we just show ourselves above the fray. We take it in stride. Just Just like we take in stride when a man says he's a gay Christian. And listen, a few years ago, Every single Christian in this country would have been horrified to hear the things you hear all the time, and you just demonstrate your equanimity about it. You know? Well, you know, if I go to hell, I guess God can get his kicks out of sending me there. And we're like, yeah, well, you'll probably go to hell. But that's not how the Apostle Paul responds. Apostle Paul responds how? Well, you see it in this text again and again and again. He says, what then? Right? What then? That's an exclamation. Then he says, next verse, may it never be. And then he says, verse 6, may it never be. And then he says, as we are slanderous, we are reported. 
And then he ends with, their condemnation is just. Listen, there are no sophisticated arguments in here. There is one. In the middle of it, he says, but if through my lie the truth of God abounded in his glory, why am I also being judged as a sinner? And this is a very sophisticated sort of reduction to the absurdity where he's saying, okay, fine. So, so like if God is, is unfaithful, if his faithfulness is nullified by somebody who rejects the Messiah, who, who doesn't hold trust, the Jewish trust, precious as they ought to, well then, by your logic, you know, you're accusing me of sin by what I'm teaching, which we're saved by grace, right? Okay, fine. Then that sin that you call, are calling me out on, you know, that sin is redounding to God's glory, so why are you calling me a liar? Because by your own logic, I'm actually helping this whole system. <laughs> Do you see this? He's turning their argument upside down on them. That's the closest you get. It's, it's, it's a reduction to absurdity. That's the closest you get in this whole text to any logical argument. Listen, why do we have such trust in logic and reason? Why? Why is it? You know why? Because we don't have any love for the glory of God. We have much more love for the glory of our mother than we do for the glory of God. If I were to come in this room and make a disparaging comment about any of your mothers, how do you think you would respond? Do you think you'd give me a logical argument? I remember when my best friend in high school, Mitch McDonald, one day in a basketball game at Elgin High, and let me tell you, in, in gym class, basketball games at Elgin High were mixed race things. Okay, it was like a quarter black, a quarter Mexican, a quarter greaser, and a quarter raw, if you remember what those words meant. I was the raw, all right? And one day, Mitch, whose dad, oh, they had money. They went skiing. They, he, was a, uh, he was a pilot for United. It don't matter. One day in the middle of the basketball game, he made a disparaging comment about a man's mother. You know what happened? About 325 pounds of solid manhood had Mitch, and Mitch was no small man. It had him on his rear end and scared out of his wits. There was no logic. There was no reason, no argument. He had just been done punched out of nowhere. But of course, it, there, it did have a certain context. The other guy's mother? And it was kind of a glancing comment. You know, he wasn't so stupid as to do it, but that guy knew what he was saying. And yet, we have God, our Father, blasphemed day after day after day. And, and almost none of us can mount the horror that the Apostle Paul shows throughout this text. Why do we not love God? Why do we not take offense at what other Christians and pastors say about our God? Why do we let them trash him? 
And that's not even to mention our entertainment. I'm not talking about RuPaul. I'm talking about the church today. And we think that we should demonstrate our ability to argue with fools. Fools. Blaspheming fools. And we go on and on and on, answering them point for point. Do you see the Apostle Paul doing that here? No, no, no. What is he doing? Well, the Apostle Paul is actually shaming them. His argument is simply, may it never be. Slanderously reported to say, and then he ends with their condemnation, their damnation is just. Have you ever tried that line on somebody who thinks they're a Christian and they blaspheme God? They talk about God being the God of homosexuality and female rebellion. Have you ever tried out the tactic of saying to them, your condemnation is just? Have you ever tried? Anybody here ever tried that? I haven't, and I think I'm an outlier. I mean, I don't know how you feel about me, but I think I'm pretty well out there on the frontier, you know. I've never tried that one. Nathan, have you ever tried that? Yeah. Have you tried that? Yeah, I'm, these are the guys that are out there at the edge. All right, let me end with this. We need to show that we are zealous for the honor and glory of our heavenly Father. That it is not, um, that it's not something that we have sort of a balanced approach to. There needs to be something in us that is, that is proportional to the foolish, foolish blasphemies that we hear. But here's the second thing. We have to stop believing in logic and reason. We have to stop believing in the power of logic and reason. The Apostle Paul is not simply exclaiming and and anathematizing. The Apostle Paul is not reasoning. Do you see that? You won't get to the point of his exclamations until you have given up on logical, reasonable argumentation. There should be times regularly in your life with your children, with your husband and wife, there should be times with people you're witnessing to where you jump right over argument directly to condemnation. Because if you argue, you have given them that their premise is legitimate. You don't dignify things like this with argument. Now, about this time, you're thinking, oh, yeah, you know, Tim. You know, I know that man. He's just hopeless. Why on earth did God ever send him to a university community? He's just an anti-intellectual. You know? He's scared of logic and reason. He's insecure. You know? He should be out in Owen County. Because they already think this, and they'd love him. Okay, so here's Calvin. 
which I don't think anybody here is prepared to say that Calvin's an anti-intellectual, right? Anybody going to? Okay, all right, okay. So here's what Calvin says. In a single phrase, he sharply, this is Paul, in a single phrase, he sharply attacks human reason. The property of which he intimates is always to speak against the wisdom of God. So Calvin just doesn't just single out the fact that the Apostle Paul is attacking reason, but he says that it is always the habit of human reason to do what? To speak against the wisdom of God. <laughs> Come on, guys, do you hear this? This is Calvin. And then he says, in a single phrase, he sharply attacks human reason, the property of which, he says, all the mysteries of God, all the mysteries of God are paradoxes to the mortals, that's you and me, who have such audacity that they do not hesitate to rise against them and insolently attack what they cannot understand. He says, we have the audacity to rise up against God and with insolence. I don't care if you're my mother. You're wrong. Okay? Insolently, we attack what we cannot understand. We are thereby reminded that if we desire to become capable of comprehending these mysteries, if you just aspire to understand these deep things that we're reading about here, he says, we must especially strive to become disentangled from our own reason. Do you hear that? We have to work to disentangle ourselves from our own reason and devote and give ourselves entirely to what Pastor Bailey says. <laughs> because this is a personality cult. Come on, guys. What does Calvin say there? You all know. He says, give ourselves entirely to the obedience of his word. To the obedience of his word. The word of God. Every single one of you is in play. You're all in play. I see it. I see it. Even as I preach, I see it. And the play is this. There are cliques, and they're just like junior high school playground. And we all want to be a part of this clique and that clique and have these people like us and those people like us. There is nothing in this world other than, on the one hand, personality cults. And on the other hand, the word of God and the glory of God. Those are the only two options. And until you die to your endless desires for the approval of man, you will never fear God and you will never have zeal for his glory. Because zeal for God's glory is completely, completely and utterly death. <laughs> You know, you've lit the fire and it's going to burn. It's self-immolation. 
and it starts in your own home with your own family. You have family members that try to act as if they're your defender and your protector. Don't you believe it? You follow God, and then you will see the motivations that are so wicked of your family members. Do you hear me? Jesus said it starts in your own home. And I'm not trying to break up homes, marriages, families. That's not my point. My point is until you resign yourself to having your own wife hate you, you have not yet begun to worship God the way you should. And the minute you resign yourself to having your wife hate you, guess what will happen? Maybe for the first time in your life, she will love you. But she won't tell you that. (laughs) She can't divulge her secrets. Do you all understand this? People, we have to go after God. We don't go after our pastor. We don't go after our friends in the pews here. We don't go after our family. We go after God. And then when we see a man or a woman who's going after God, we don't punish them for it. Even if they don't do it the way we want them to do it, we don't punish the Apostle Paul, do we? Imagine all the Romans. Oh, Paul, that's such an obnoxious section in Romans. Can't you remove that? Alex, Nathan, where are your, where are your scissors? Cut it! Cut it out! You know? Their condemnation is just. Did you really have to say that, the Apostle Paul? You know? It's so censorious. Come on. Be sold out. Be sold out. Don't trust in reason. Don't trust in logic. If you want to understand the deep things of God, have some exclamations of horror and shame. Let yourself go, just like at Disneyland, but in a much better direction. You know, let yourself go. Become a little child. Have faith as a child. Let them see your fangs because it's your heavenly father that they're blaspheming. All right? Okay, I'll stop. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you for your glory. Father, we pray that you will give us a zeal for your glory which leaves in the dust our zeal for our mothers and our fathers. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.